All right, we'll have a little soft rollout tonight. Uh, I'm Kevin Griffin. Now that Eleanor's here, we can start. <laughs> I thought you weren't coming. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, it's the beginning of a new year. Uh, I hope uh, I hope it's the continuation of your recovery. If not, at best, at least. Uh, the uh, renewal of your recovery, or perhaps the beginning of your recovery. Um, we had a nice day long on the 30th of December. Uh, some of you were here. Um, include, I was here. <laughs> um, but, uh, what? You were sick. I was sick. I'm better. No, I'm not totally better, but thank you for... Remembering, that's right. I got, I got worse too. It, teaching did not like heal me. We had lots of compassion. Thank you, thank you for your compassion. Appreciate it. Uh, I uh, and and it's kind of a time uh, as a teacher when I and particularly working with the twelve steps uh, that I reflect a bit on my own teaching and what I'm offering, and uh, and because there's some. I'm coming out with some new things. Uh, among them, this just arrived at my house yesterday. This is a new edition of One Breath at a Time. Uh, there's some out there. Uh, and there's, it's mostly just a new cover. You know how publishers are. <laughs> They'll do anything for a buck. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm not good like that. Well, uh, and I want to talk about that actually. But there is a forward here, a new forward by Bill Alexander, who he was here last month, right? He was here, and if you were here for that, you know that he's com- completely unreliable. So everything he says about me, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, and then I wrote a little afterward in it. So that's the new stuff. Um, <clears throat> But um, but it does you know a couple things I just kind of w- want to talk to you about as my I don't know if you're not exactly my friends but I feel like you're my friends and and uh, and you know that I use this position sometimes to reflect on personal issues and and it is a it's a strange position to be in actually to to put yourself up as as teaching something spiritual and 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 publishing books you know people say really wonderful things to me about my books uh, that I've helped them and I didn't mean to you know it's it's not that I didn't want to be helpful but that's not you know it's interesting for myself I have to look at my own motivation and particularly when it comes to marketing I mean I would love it if Oprah would you know take my book and you know make it a bestseller and and I'd make a lot of money because then I'd have more money and everybody wants more money except you know good good Buddhists don't want to make more money so there you go one of my flaws <clears throat> but um, but you know there's this a bit of a conflict there's a conflict on two levels first of all that yeah greed is not like a Buddhist pr- uh, principle spiritual principle it's not a spiritual principle and um and uh, glorification of self isn't either. So, like, if I'm publishing this book to make a lot of money and get famous, it's kind of like, well, 
you're a phony, right? If, you, if this is your book that's about Buddhism and the 12 steps and you're doing it for your own, uh, for those purposes. Uh, so I, I have to ask myself why I do do it. Um, and actually I write because I love to write. And sometimes, I, see I'm afraid that I don't want to sit up and say like, oh, I know, I have some great wisdom that, you know, sit at my feet and I will share it with you. You know, I don't feel like that. But, but sometimes I do, I do feel like I have some useful things to say. So, and, but mostly I just really like writing. But it's also true that if, if there wasn't any, if nobody was going to read it, I wouldn't probably write it that I have written a bunch of novels that nobody's read, so maybe I would. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's really obvious to me is that you guys are what complete my work. You know, if, I, if you don't show up on Friday, the second Friday, I can't do what I do. If you don't read my books, there's no point in my writing my books. So there's this relationship and it's, I don't think it's exactly, I don't think on either side that we quite understand all of it in, in a way that, that you probably don't realize how much I need you. Uh, and, um, you know, I, well, I, 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 don't, I don't know, um, you know, once you write a book, like you have an idea of who it's for and how it should be understood, but I don't know what you, you know, somebody might say, oh, this is a favorite part of my book, and I'm, your book, and I'll be like, oh, really? That's a typo, or, you know, whatever, you know? I mean, I, or, oh, is that, is that oh, I didn't, whatever, you know? You, you, you lose control of it, you know? It becomes your book, really. And, and this idea that this is my book doesn't make any sense, actually. Because I'm not getting anything out of it, you know. After after I write it, it's just I hand it to you, and then it became, then it's your book. So anyway, I, I don't I don't know what all of this is about, but but uh, I just my you know I start getting neurotic about the whole thing, you know, and and uh, so there you go. That's my sharing. Um, I've been I'm, this month, uh, as I often do. I'm teaching a course for college students on Buddhism, and uh, so I've been spending several hours, uh, like four four days this week. It's four days a week, two and a half hours a day, uh, talking about and and they read and we share and I lecture and uh, about Dharma. So I've, I feel very immersed in Dharma, which is kind of sweet, um, and. Each day I do a guided meditation and I try to introduce them to different practices. So the one that I did today is one that I don't usually do really at all. Occasionally I do it when I'm teaching. But um, I thought I would share it tonight. It's, a, it's actually a very classic uh, practice uh, called sweeping. And, and it's, it's really, the, the, I think, the thing that they start people with in... Um, in uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. That's where we move our attention very slowly through the body and go into the different parts of the body. Um, and, and as far as I know, the, 
the person who more or less originated it was a, a Burmese, uh, I think it was a government official. His name was Uba Kin. And, um, and two of his stu- lead, like, best-known students were uh, S.N. Goenka, a uh, very famous Indian Buddhist teacher, and Ruth Dennison. And Ruth Dennison was American, uh, a, actually uh, escaped from Germany, I think before the war, um, and founded a, a Dharma center, a retreat center in Southern California in, in Joshua Tree called uh, Damadina. And uh, Ruth was uh, one of the first Dharma teachers that I encountered. I didn't practice with her a lot, but I, I took retreats at her center and she was always hovering around. A really remarkable woman, uh, somebody really one of the kind of forerunners of Western Buddhism. If you ever get a chance to read about her, um, she was a really interesting and a a kind of a nut in a really beautiful way. Uh, She had these little schnauzers that she would bring into the meditation hall and they would sit with her. And she was known for... um, Teach, like you would go on a, a week-long retreat with her and she would talk the whole time. So when she would teach at... at uh, she did teach here, but when she would teach at IMS, I remember seeing uh, a flyer or some kind of a, a catalog that said, you know, Ruth Dennison, 10-day retreat. And then it would said, continuous teaching. <laughs> <laughs> which was their way of warning people like if you don't want somebody because some, some people found it annoying but I really loved it and, it and it really what she was basically saying was you're spacing out most of the time so I'm going to keep interrupting you you know she wouldn't let you space out for very long because she would keep bringing you back and she did think she, she kept a skeleton in the meditation hall uh, a real skeleton and uh, and she would do uh, the skeleton dance. You know, everybody would go out in the de- desert, and you would have to like dance like a skeleton. She did a lot of unusual things that they don't do at Spirit Rock these days. You know, it wasn't the buttoned-up kind of you know severe or whatever. You know, goody-goody. Uh, I don't know. I think I criticized Spirit Rock. Don't say anything. <laughs> So if you want to see my 25, 27 college students, I'm going to bring them out here on Monday night for the, for the uh, sitting that night. So that's, that's enough of a prelude. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more. I, I also want to talk about um, generally how, how I'm going forward with my teaching, but uh, I think I will save that for the Dharma talk. So uh, let's begin to sit. Just settling into your 
posture, gently closing your eyes or just lowering your gaze if you're more comfortable with your eyes open. And beginning by just checking in with yourself. How are you feeling right now? And just feeling the breath, moving in the body. And so, and for this guided part of the meditation, take your attention to the crown of the head. This is the kind of back of the scalp. chakra system, it's the crown chakra. In any case, just feeling the sensations at the top of the head and trying to feel a small area, maybe a square inch or two. It's as though you're shining a light or looking through a microscope but rather than looking, you're feeling. So feeling the sensations of the skin, perhaps the hair, and maybe the bone itself. Whatever sensations you can feel. It might not be anything. You can just let your attention be in that area. As we move the attention, we find there's different levels of sensation at different places. And the mind wanders and we just come back to wherever we're focusing. So let your attention now sweep forward on the skull, on the top of the head, towards the front feeling any sensations. So we can use the four elements as models for types of sensations, the density of earth, the movement of air, the fluidity of water, and the temperature of the fire element. Feeling, if you feel the bone, then that's the earth element. You might feel a tingling, an air element. You might feel warm or cool, the fire element. And so on. So feeling the top of your head and now moving your attention down the left side of your head, just over the temple, 
and the left ear, feeling all the sensations inside and outside the ear. And then moving the attention to the right side of the head, the right temple, the right ear, inside and outside. Always bringing the wandering mind back to the last place. And then focusing on the left cheek, the skin, the bone, down to the jawline. Pulsing, dense, tingling, warm, cool. And then down the right cheek, bone and flesh, skin, down to the right jawbone. Now moving the attention across the forehead from left to right, feeling the skin, the flesh, the, the bone of the skull there, warmth or coolness, energy. whatever appears or does not appear. Moving to the left eye, feeling the eye itself inside, the eyelid, soft, Lots of liquid. And the right eye. Inside. And the eyelid. And moving the attention to the nose, the 
bone and cartilage, flesh outside and then the inside, feeling the air entering and leaving, any energy or sensation, temperature, into the upper lip and the area between the nose and the mouth. Whatever sensations are felt, you might feel the breath here as well. And the lips, the moisture, soft. And the mouth inside, moist. The soft tongue and cheeks, the hard palate, the hard teeth. And feeling the chin, solid, earth element. And the neck and throat, inside and outside. The neck, the back of the neck, and the left shoulder and collarbone. Again, the earth element. Right shoulder and collarbone, feeling the strength of the shoulders. Strength of the skeleton. And moving the attention to the left arm, 
sap, a bone, sensations in the armpit, and the left elbow. forearm, flesh and bone, the wrist, and the left hand, feeling the palm of the hand, the back of the hand, then letting the attention Move through the fingers one by one. Noticing whatever is there. Not chasing after a sensation. If nothing is felt. Just feeling what you can feel. And moving the attention to the right arm, the upper arm, bicep and bone, sensations of the armpit. finger when it's difficult to feel a sensation look for contrasts so with the hand the contrast of the palm and the top of the hand or the back of the hand usually distinctive And each finger usually can be felt separate from the others.
Now exploring the back, letting the attention go to the left side of the back from top to bottom, scanning across, scanning down, muscle and bone, flesh, whatever you can feel, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And the right side of the back, top to bottom, flesh and bone. And the spine. Everything meets at the spine, the ribs, the neck, the shoulders, the arms, all depending on this central column. And moving now to the chest, to feel the left side of the chest, the movement from breath, any sensations, the right side of the chest. And feeling the movement of the ribs, protecting the heart and lungs. Flexing with the movement of the lungs. And moving down through the belly, inside and out, soft flesh, and the buttocks left and right, feeling the pressure of sitting, the pelvis, the genitals, bone and flesh, And the left thigh, the large muscles, the long bones, the knee, 
the shin and calf. the ankle, then the foot, the sole of the foot, the top of the foot, and the toes. And now feeling the whole body, feel the life of the body. That's what these sensations are revealing. Without life there are no sensations. There's no nervous system to know what we feel. No transmission of information, just inert flesh and bone. We're feeling the whole body as a single thing, single object, with all the life in it. And in that global perception, what sensation stands out? What draws the attention? If there's one point of sensation that's prominent, just spend your time there for a little while. Pleasant or unpleasant. And we'll just sit in silence.
Yes, sir. So uh, I'd like to take questions about practice at this time, if there are any. If you can speak after that silence period. Um, And if you have questions about that particular practice or your experience with it. Generally, I find people either really like that practice or really don't like it. I know when I first got introduced to it, it would put me to sleep and I wouldn't really feel anything. There were a lot of parts of my body where I'd be like, I don't feel anything. And then my, then my mind would want to go somewhere there where there was something going on. So I'd kind of get annoyed about the whole thing. But uh, it's a good concentration practice, uh, which is why it puts you to sleep. Because concentration needs energy. So if you don't have energy and you do it, you might fall asleep. So actually it's a good thing to do if you need to fall asleep. If you're lying in bed, it's a good way to quiet down. Um, although I don't, you know, it's it's risky to condition your mind to go to sleep in meditating. Anyway. Now, any questions, though, tonight about practice and anything at all, really? There you go. If you use the microphone. It's partly for the group and also for the posterity. <clears throat> I found I had some tension in my right side of the back. Mm -hmm. And if I focused on it, it was still there. But if I got into a different part, it would go away. It was very nice. Wow. So so when you didn't... It was only there when you focused on that part of your body? No, it's always there. Oh, it's always there. But you only really noticed it when you were... No, it's just when you when it, you mentioned go to the right side, um, you got. Then I noticed you got particularly it was intense. Oh yeah, right. Uh, I'm sorry. No, it was it was wonderful. <laughs> oh, oh. So the tension was wonderful. I don't. No, but that uh, just realizing it. Just like being with that being. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is like what I said about feeling just the life of the body. You know, it's like there's a lot going on in our bodies, a lot that we're sensing that we don't notice because we're busy you know, thinking of figuring everything out. Well, good. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, that's my cough drop. Oh, really? Ouch. Mm. Just, we should just move right down the line. Then. Yeah, I know. I wanted him to uh, move over so he could work for it a bit. Um, and Alina, um, I wanted more to do a reflection. I've been uh, doing this type of meditation for a while, and uh, after... I did it today, I was just like going to the fingers and toes and I used to love this uh, type and it helped me so much. Uh, In the beginning when I did it, I was just like, what, I'm going to feel the toes, like individually. I just had no concept whatsoever. Yeah. And now to be able to really go in, it's just a wonderful way. It has actually helped me uh, with uh, falling asleep at night. Mm -hmm. In the beginning when I did it, I was 
falling asleep. Like I did like yeah. one leg and I was gone, you know. But now, then I learned actually to fall awake, fall awake, and um, and it's just I think it's a very beautiful yeah. med- meditation. And um, uh, has uh, so I just want to share how much it helped me with um, uh, dissociation and coming back in my body mm. and just gaining. I remember mm. when I started to kind of feel my feet and I was like fascinated like a kid about it you know and I realized how out of my body I've been for so very long Mm. and that started to happen a few months into my recovery so that was kind of my thoughts after tonight thank you yeah that's great thank you and particularly about the dissociation and it's like it's very grounding Mm -hmm. right you're really in your body in in um Gawanka, the t- teacher I mentioned, who uses the Indian teacher who, who uses this, he actually just passed away uh, last year or the year before. Time passes. Um, on his ten-day retreats, they, you would work with the breath for a couple days, and then you would start to do this, and you would do this continuously. You would just go through, and then you'd come back up, or you'd go down, and. Um, and he particularly emphasized the aspect of impermanence that you become aware of as you pay attention to the sensations in the body because you start to see that they're not static. There's, you know, we think of the body as this sort of solid thing, but the more you, and the closer you pay attention to it, the more you see that it's, it's a vibratory nature that it's just sensations um, coming and going and even the parts of the body that seem solid are not really solid and and then as the mind gets really still there can be this experience of it sensing the whole thing dissolving but um, but it's, it, it always struck me as interesting that he used that this practice as a way of uh, as a kind of gateway into seeing impermanence. Um, I don't know why, but... I just, so I guess I'll just say that's a good thing to check out if you do this practice, like notice the impermanent nature of all the sensations, how they're all... And I don't... I'm never really satisfied with that word impermanence when talking about the experience of the body... I much prefer a word like vibratory or energetic that it's because impermanent kind of sounds like I'm here and then I'm gone and it, that's not how it feels to me it's and people will talk about the rising and falling and I'm not really aware so much of like the rising and falling I'm just aware that like nothing is stable so that's what really stands out for me about really paying attention to any experience especially in the body, that it's not, sol- it's not stable. It's like always moving and, and uh, energetic. It just feels more like energy than it does like an object. Um, and, and I think that is one of the things that the word anicca in Pali, which is the one we translate as impermanent, actually means that it also means uh, unstable. Um, it's interesting that uh, uh, I was just remembering that um, Ajahn Chah I think there's a Thai word I don't remember what it is but he 
for for Anicca, he says, it's uncertain. Everything is uncertain. So that's a whole other kind of perspective on impermanence. That reminds me, kind of, I think, it reminds me of the the Korean Zen kind of mantra: is don't know. You don't know what's gonna. You don't know. Certainly, we don't know what's going to happen next. And in some ways, we don't know what's happening now. I mean, we, you know, we have our own interpretation of what's happening now through our senses, but we realize that, well, it's only coming through my own senses and my own conditioning and my own memories and my own capacity. So I can't hear certain things. I can't see certain things that, I, that people, that scientists tell me are there. Like I can't see x-rays. I can't hear, you know, dog whistles. Um, so don't know. It's kind of like I really, it, it's, it, 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 the, it creates this uh, relationship to our lives and our experience that's very awake. Like if you think you know, then you don't need to pay attention. I got it. I got this. You know, but if you don't know, you're like, what's happening? What's going to happen? Like, wow, I should stay awake. So all of that, in a way, kind of comes out of a Nietzsche and uncertain and don't know. You know, when when you start to pay attention to your body and you've never done it, it's one of the fun things about teaching this to college students because it's like they're really just so innocent in, on this certain level. It's like discovering this other world that you didn't exi- know existed. I certainly felt that when I started to practice. Like, wow, there's... An- there's another like level of being that mindfulness opens up for us. The life of the body and the life of the heart and the life of the mind that's, that's there. Uh, but it's just like behind the veil, you know, and we kind of, the mindfulness kind of pulls back the veil and all of a sudden it's like, wow, wow that's, there's more going on than I realized. And you can get that in a yoga class too, right? When you, if you have a really good yoga class where you're like, oh, wow, that, oh, I'm feeling something in my body I never felt before. So, pretty sweet. Any other questions? <laughs> Not sure I'm answering questions, but... Uh, I like to start with them. This reminded me of, I'm reading a book called The Body Keeps Score. Mm. And it's um, more around trauma. but um, I'm losing, by the way. (laughs) Yes. Um, One of the exercises, because we do dissociate, oh, because we do dissociate, is to do just drumming on a table and... Finding a rhythm mm-hmm. and just bringing your body back into the same rhythm. And um, they've done research, wow. and it's one of those wonderful things. That That's help. great. Now I can tell my wife. 
When you're drumming. Yeah. Like, it's okay. I'm doing, this is important. I need to do this. You know, it's like you're drumming. Why are you drumming like that? Musicians do it, by the way. Yeah. So we already do it. We knew that already. That's interesting. So people do the drumming. Let, let, keep, let her have the microphone because I didn't. I, I, I was really just thinking about my own things instead of listening to what you were saying. Well, as soon as you said drumming, I was like, oh, yeah, I do that. So it's. What do they do it for? So again, it's, it, it's around trauma, yeah. PTSD, and that kind of thing. Trying, and it was working with veterans, actually. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then the way they dissociate from their body or mm-hmm. certain parts or that bring up memories. Yeah. So just to um, play. In so the they room. teach they them just to do that? Played in the room and they yeah, yeah. as a group. Mm-hmm. Just started and people just kind of found their own rhythm. Yeah. But the drumming was a good he said on a table it doesn't matter where you do it at and Wow. And I could see that you slowly start to get So that whole Venice Beach thing, it's really like a trauma. You never been to Venice Beach? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, the drum circles. And oh. Actually, they do it at Cal too. On the, they used to do it at least on the Cal campus. Uh, the drum Ions. circles. Yeah. I've gone to Ions. They do it there. To where? Ions Institute of Noetic. Oh yeah, yeah, right, right. Cool. Hmm. Thank you. Well, it is. Yeah, the, the, you know, there's a famous line from. Uh, James Joyce that Buddhists quote and of course I don't know it because I'm not, I don't know maybe I'm not a Buddhist but some Buddhist teacher and it's something like you know Mr. Daltrey uh, lived at a short distance from his body uh, that's not the right character name but it's that's the basic line that that and it's like really that's a perfect kind of way of describing how we kind of walk around at a short distance from our bodies I mean, I think in order to eat at McDonald's every day, you have to be a sh- at least a short distance from your body. And Americans, you know, what we eat, yeah. Um, I, I was just curious um, how the concept of homeostasis um, plays into what you said. That's like a scientific thing, homeostasis? It, yeah, it, I don't, it's, it's physiology. It's you know... I dropped out of high school. I don't know if I mentioned that. Okay, never mind. And then when I went back to school, I mostly like studied writing and stuff, and because that sounds like something that was in my biology class that I took in summer school in 1967, which was the summer I started smoking pot. So I just kind of. But tell what do you what do you think? I mean, what are you saying? And use the microphone because. Okay. I mean, essentially, homeostasis is uh, in physiology is kind of like the dynamic balance, balance. Of, of of organisms of you know yeah. keeping an internal balance that is dynamic, like yeah. temperature, uh, blood pressure, fluid, and so on. And uh, you know, but when you saw, talked about the impermanence or vibration of a body, mm-hmm. I was wondering whether you know whether that concept of homeostasis could also be an expression of that. Like the body is constantly trying to find that place, and because nothing's ever in, stable, yes. it, it has to, it's always like this, exactly. rather than, oh, I'm in balance now. It's yeah. kind of a dynamic balance. Yeah, yeah, dynamic balance. That's beautiful. That's a good phrase. Uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So you think that's why the sensations are like that? That's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, right, because if you were... 
if you were just like stasis, I mean, if you're just stable, and maybe you wouldn't feel anything. Right, yeah, then it's like a rock. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, because there's always this sort of idea, well, people are like afraid of change. And then you say, well, what if nothing changed? If you think change is bad, <laughs> you know, the rest of your life is going to be sitting in this room staring at me. <laughs> I mean, that would really... It might be what hell is. I don't, I'm not sure. There's some version of that. And I'm not sure I'm involved, but, you know. Yeah. Nice. All right, let's take a little break, and now we'll come back and see if we can make some more sense. And if, you know, please do take a look at these the new book, if you're interested, or the new version of the book. I mean, actually, I'm going to have a new, new book very, very shortly. So we'll just get rid of this quickly.
So, uh, January 12th, my parents were married on January 12th, 1935, <laughs> they're dead, but anyway, I, <laughs> I, I think about it sometimes, my, my brother Jerry was born on January 12th, 1940, so sort of like a weird day, it's also uh, like a Catholic holiday, like the, the, the feast of the Come on, it's like the end of the whole. Uh, it's it's when the the three wise men actually got there, I think, isn't it? What the fifth? Uh, okay. Well, that was I was almost there. That's why I'm not a Catholic anymore. So um, yeah, for those who don't know me, I'm Kevin Griffin, and um, and uh, you know I have a 
an unfortunate sense of what I call sense of humor. Uh, some people do not. Uh, and uh, last month I, I offended someone who, who's not here. So I guess I don't have to worry about that. Um, but I do sometimes offend people, and I don't mean to. Uh, but um, I try not to take this role or myself or any of this too seriously. So sometimes I, you know, uh, go too far over to the not serious side. I, I absolutely take Dharma and recovery and the 12 steps very seriously. They are the backbone of my life. They're the, the center of my life. But... Um, Well, I, 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 you know, I don't want to go too far with this, but let me just say that um, the first time I taught um, about recovery at Spirit Rock was in the spring of 2003. And that was a year before One Breath at a Time was published. And uh, I taught an eight-week series on Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. So that's 15 years that I've been teaching about Buddhism, the 12 steps. So, uh, because everything is impermanent, the way I teach that changes, and my my relationship to that changes. And uh, at that time, I was very intent on trying to make correlations for people and really help them to see how the steps could work with Buddhism. And I think that was more important then than I think it is now because although I know there are new people who are coming regularly, there's also a large community of people who are now really Dharma practitioners who who are in recovery. They aren't just people that are sober that came to Spirit Rock for one class. Uh, In any case, there's also people who really want to hear... I guess what I'm talking about is like, I have to figure out what to teach. <laughs> and it doesn't really work to take a vote, i found, because what you find is that there's all these different opinions, and that doesn't help. So since I'm the teacher, I wind up having to make decisions about that. What I will say is that... So I'm definitely evolved... I've evolved somewhat away from work, teaching specifically, okay, it's January, we're going to talk about step one and how Buddhism correlates with step one. That Some of that will come through, but I tend to get more drifting into sort of uh, subtopics or categories uh, that, that aren't trying to encompass this whole thing and make a whole statement. Um, but I will say that one of the reasons I feel that I can do that without losing people is that my books have really summed up all that all that stuff and that's why I wrote those books and so in a way it, it feels redundant to just keep saying the same things that are in my books um, so in, in one, on the one hand I'm apologizing if you came here hoping I was going to explain step one in Buddhism uh, and on the other hand I'm just you know not apologizing <laughs> 
Uh, I, I actually got an email from someone uh, a few weeks ago saying that I didn't talk enough about the steps at the last event. And I know that if I'd have polled everybody, it would have been, some people would have been like, I want to hear more about the steps. Some people would have been like, oh, I like the way you did it. And some people would like, I wish you would talk less about this. You know, and it's like, okay. Like I said, I have to make a decision. So anyway, I, I don't know if I'm telling you stuff that you care about, but um, it's letting you know something about my thinking here. I, I mean, I feel obviously a real responsibility to be of service. Uh, and at the same time, I can only do what I can do. So... Um, so let me get on and do it. Padampa. What? That was for before. But go ahead. Especially since he's wearing a Led Zeppelin t-shirt. I can't really, you know. I know. I, I'm sorry. No, but you I had this sorry. strong urge to ask the question. And Great. that is, how has moving into Buddhism made you feel more compassion for yourself? For who? For myself? Mm -hmm. What do you mean moving into Buddhism? I mean, being a Buddhist. Oh. How has that helped you to have compassion for yourself? Thank you. In spite of having been an alcoholic. Oh, yeah. Good. Thank you. That's a good question. We can use that as a a topic. First of all, I'm going to say that I don't call myself a Buddhist, uh, even though I obviously sort of am one, but I don't... I have some issues about how people... I'd rather call myself an alcoholic than a Buddhist, which is kind of weird. Most people would be the opposite. Because um, I don't exactly know what a Buddhist is, you know what I mean? But I do know what an alcoholic is. But yeah, I can, I'll, I'm going to answer your question. I'm just saying, yeah. yeah. So, and I think it's a really good question because... Um, it's really important to me, self-compassion. And uh, so, and it has to do with step one and, and something that uh, Eleanor and I were talking about during the break, about perfection. Uh, that that um, when, I started, I, when I started to practice Buddhist meditation, I had this idea of how it was supposed to go and how I was supposed to meditate and what was supposed to happen. And it didn't happen. And so I got frustrated because I thought either I'm not doing this right or they're holding something back. You know, like, let me go talk to the teacher and get him to tell me what to do. And I I can remember going to Jack Cornfield many times on retreats, Joseph Goldstein too, and saying something like, you know, this is happening, and like, you know, um, like my my thoughts keep wandering, or, or, um, you know, my knees are really killing me, like, what should I do? And they'd be like, just see if you can pay attention to that. And I'd be like, I don't want to just pay attention. I want to like get through it. I want to get to the other side. I want to get to the enlightenment part, you know. And uh, you know, they would say it over and over, and you'd be like, "These guys." I mean, obviously, they're like, you know, really don't know what they're doing because they, they're just, oh, just notice that. It's like it's like a therapist. Like, how does that? How do you feel about that? Like, ah. 
So, um, after a while, I started to realize, I mean, obviously they were talking about being mindful, but, but what I started to see, and particularly on my first long retreat, was that I'm really not in control here. I am really not in control of my mind. I'm not in control of this experience of my body. I can control the way my body moves sometimes, but I'm, and so when my mind wanders and doesn't do what I think it's supposed to do, it really doesn't help if I beat myself up. What happens is that then I feel worse. And then my mind wanders more. Because now I'm agitated. and I'm judging myself. And so when I dropped that, when I learned to drop that, I got this idea that eventually became something that I say when I'm teaching, which is that my companions, as I'm sitting here meditating, I have two companions, forgiveness and compassion. I have forgiveness because I'm not in control. And it's not my fault. And I have compassion because it's painful to not be in control. It's, it's painful that my mind wanders. I wish it didn't. So that kind of gave me a foundation so that when I got sober, and step one says, hey, it's January, step one. I think I'll talk about the steps. I said, just kidding. Um, you know, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives become unmanageable. Well, I realized, like, oh, powerless over alcohol, like, that's kind of the same thing with my meditation. And so, yeah, it, 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 there was this direct corollary in terms of forgiveness and compassion. Like, I didn't really want to be an alcoholic and an addict, and I didn't, you know, the condition I have is one, I mean, what you're powerless over is, uh, you know, something that can be debated, but certainly it's pointing to the fact that I'm not in control. And, I'm, and particularly once I in, imbibe or ingest some, some, one of those intoxicants, I'm not in control. And so... Just like I'm not in control of my mind, I have to forgive myself for that because it's not my fault that I'm an addict, really. Uh, I'm participating, but, you know. And then it's painful to be an addict. It's suffering. So I should, then compassion is a, is a natural and a skillful, a wise response to that. Why should I, you know, beat myself up for the fact that I'm suffering? That seems like piling on. You know, which is a 15-yard penalty. You know, that would be unnecessary roughness um, since it's football season. Uh, so, so yeah, th- there's that that connection. That and and I think then that you know what we the mindfulness is is the thing that we rely on to be the reminder. So mindfulness is actually the word sati, which is the Pali word 
the 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 early Buddhist term for mind that we translate as mindfulness. It's related to the word to remember or to remind. So mindfulness reminds me that oh wait I'm not in control and I'm suffering. Oh, I should forgive myself and be compassionate. Compassionate. So I, I need to be mindful in order to activate those things. Otherwise, I forget to do it and I just fall into the typical, like, oh man, this sucks, or I suck, or whatever, and uh, you know, or blaming, or whatever it is that I, that you do with that. So, um, so that's kind of yeah the way it, I see that working. That. Uh, that Buddhism uh, is a helps us to yeah be compassionate towards ourselves. Thank you for that question. So, <clears throat> so yeah. So I was thinking about powerlessness as I rode out tonight, and thinking, well, someone you know might want to hear about the steps, and it's just always such an interesting word to have to deal with, and. So I will, I'll do just what I said I wasn't going to do, maybe. <laughs> uh, why not? Uh, it was uh, Walt Whitman said something like, do I contradict myself? Well, then I contradict myself. I, what does he say? I am large, I contain multitudes, something like that. I love that idea, I contain multitudes. Like, I have all these different personalities, right? And that's not even like a, you know a psychotic condition. I'm just a normal human being. Well, semi-normal. Um, you know, I think we can get into this kind of debate. And I, and I find I'm not very interested in spiritual debates about, and especially 12-step debates. You know, I mean, all you have to do is like post something on Facebook. or When I, I used to write blogs for the Huffington Post and I would write about Buddhism and the 12 steps and all these people would just attack they wouldn't even attack me which was good but they, they would just attack the 12 steps you know and they were like oh that was easy you know just right you know throw it up there <laughs> everybody just pulls out their AR-15s and goes at it so it's easy to set people off so you know a word like powerless is just so What's interesting to me, and, and I think very telling, is that what people do a lot of times when they're attacking the 12 steps is that they're trying to shoot holes in it. And really, if you're trying to get sober, you do, or if, if you have a problem with alcohol and drugs, why do you want to like undermine or try to figure out what doesn't work? You know? Probably the reason you want to do that is because you don't want to do the work, right? So whether the 12 steps or the 12-step concepts or AA is exactly right about everything, I think a more useful question is, what can we get out of this idea? What can we learn from this that we can relate to that can help us in our process of recovery? Uh, it's the old take what you need and leave the rest concept. Which, as far as I know, the first time I ever heard that line was from the band. The night they drove old Dixie down. 
Right? I, what, did anybody, did it ever, was it ever said before that? I'm sure. What, someone must have said it before that. Maybe. But it might have been Robbie Robertson. Songwriters sometimes <laughs> are the people who come up with, I mean, I'm pretty sure that, like, there are certain things that Bob Dylan said that nobody ever said before, like combinations of words. <laughs> but anyway, take what you need and leave the rest, but they should never have taken the very best. Because <laughs> his brother... Anyway, this guy going to that. Because actually, you know, that's a song like Supporting the South, and even though, you know, it's a beautiful song, I don't think we can really... We're going to have to take that monument down. Sorry. See, now you've got that song in your head. Sorry. So... I mean, I t- and t- I, again, just going back to the step, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. W- alcohol. What does that exactly mean to you? It, you know, it, it doesn't it mean that alcohol is going to attack you. You know, like, oh, there's alcohol's coming, I got it. No, you know, even if you, like, walk into a bar, you have to participate, right? So it's not... And so, all right, presumably that's, I mean, I'm being silly maybe, but just like, okay, presumably what what I've always thought it meant is that once I had a drink, something happened to me, and and I didn't know what would happen. Don't know. Very Korean Zen, right? I don't know what's going to happen. It's not that I have a drink and, you know, automatically... I get drunk. There were many times when I had a drink or two and I didn't get drunk. I I know that's not true of everybody. Some people really just, I guess, I mean, everybody's different. But then there were times when I got drunk and I didn't know. Although sometimes I sort of sensed it. I I feel one coming. In fact, not only do I feel it coming, I feel that I need it. I need it. Like, if I don't get drunk, I'm going to explode, you know. So, <coughs> I was trying to. <coughs> There's the microphones over here. It's one of the reasons I don't like these microphones. You know that, Sarah. Yeah. They don't listen to me. I say, give me a microphone, microphone. But no. Um, we're going to, like, I'm, we're really going to get through this, I promise you. We've still got 25 minutes. We're going to get through powerless. So, so yeah, I mean, there's this thing about I don't... What I think is a good way of thinking about it is I'm not in control. I don't control my relationship with alcohol. And that kind of flips it rather than say... Because powerless, that's one of the things that people don't like. It's like, well, I have some power. Yes, you do. It's okay. We're not... You know. You're not helpless. I mean, that's actually like one of the topics in the first step in One Breath at a Time. Powerless, not helpless. And that's a really important thing to see. We have a role. But I also think that what was going on when the 12 steps were being written was that they wanted to talk about power because they wanted to be able to say higher power later on. So it was a setup in a way, you know. (laughs) 
I mean, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean in a positive, like there was an intention behind it is what I mean. There was intentional use of the language. So they might have like said a word that that when you just pick it out, outside of the context of the steps might be like, well, wait a minute, I don't know if I'm powerless, but it's like, no, what we're trying to say is that, uh, you you know, you have to shift your your relationship to control. But it's, it's not, uh, it's not all that evident what that step means to me. And, and, and as I also point out in one of my books, it doesn't mention that Step one is also, we stopped. You know, it's funny that that's not mentioned. We're, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives become unmanageable. I mean, there's a lot of people who do that and don't stop. So they haven't done the step. Well, I've done step one. I've admitted it. Give me another drink. I'm like, what? Wait, that's not... So I don't know if that's step zero or if it's step one and a half or it's like in between powerless and unmanageable. But clearly the step is saying we stopped. I think. I don't know. So, but let me correlate it a little bit with some Buddhist principles. First of all, just what I was talking about with this question, that I realize I'm powerless over my thinking. You know, when you start to meditate, you realize, wow, I don't control my thinking. Well, that's another kind of powerless, though. Um, and, and, you know, as I wrote One Breath at a Time, and as I tried to start to figure out how to specifically connect the steps, I asked myself, is there somewhere where the Buddha says we're powerless? And I've never seen that word in the teachings, but I realized that there were some really essential teachings that expressed the same thing. And one of them being what's called the five daily recollections. And the five daily recollections is, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to be sick, sick and ill. I am not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature... To die, I have not gone beyond death. All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. So that's the first four, which is a great way to start your day. (laughs) You know, you just up and at a cup of coffee and sickness, old age, and death and loss. Great. But he's saying that we don't have control over these things. And, of course, the, the implication is you need to come into acceptance of this stuff. You need to get comfortable with this or you're going to be in dukkha. You're going to be in suffering. You're going to be struggling. You're going to be in conflict with reality if every time something changes or something, somebody gets sick or another gray hair comes out or another just hair falls out, you know, and, you know someone dies, you know, so, uh, so, you know the wa- washing machine breaks. If everything, every time something like this happens, you're like, oh no, what's going on? Why is this happening to me? You know, it's like, uh, it's just reality, it's life. 
And of course, we do live in conflict with that stuff, right? I mean, that's why it's a daily contemplation, because it's so natural for us to forget. But he's saying we're powerless over all that stuff. Um, the, the fifth one, by the way, you might be curious, but is, is all about karma. I am born of my karma. I am the heir to my karma. I am related to my karma. I am the owner of my karma. Whatever I th- think, say, or do, whether good or evil, this I will inherit. So it's after he tells you that you're not in control of all that stuff, you are responsible for how your life progresses, you know, which really sucks, you know, because... We, that's the one thing we don't want to be, you know. The, and and I love that. Like the Buddha is always telling you, like you don't own your thoughts, you don't own your feelings, you don't own your body. You're like, you know, you know. The only thing you own is your karma. It's like the one thing you don't want to own. Could I trade this in? Like, can I get a new model? You know. But uh, so. So in this way, I feel like powerlessness is actually a good doorway into a broader dharma, understanding of the dharma. Rather than the dharma teaching us about the steps, I feel like the steps are really teaching us about the dharma. Because I don't think that the five daily contemplations are as explicit as as step one is so explicit. We're powerless. Our lives are invincible. Whoa, okay, i got to face that. It's like, oh, right, I'm also powerless over all this other stuff. And what do I need to do about that? Well, you know, acceptance is the answer to my problems today, right? Um, and, 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 you know, manageability, just to move on from powerless, you know, manageability is also about control, you know? Uh, uh, and, uh, I mean, it's interesting, you know, here it gets really... Complicated because the very idea of like I'm going to manage my life. I mean, this is what the steps are trying to say, right? You're not in control, and and it gets a lot more complicated when we when step three says, well, but turn it over to God, and what that means. So, um, it's hard for me to just stay on step one. I can see that. Uh, but uh, this this the, this surrender, I think that step one is pointing to, I think is really what's at the heart of it for most of us, maybe for all of us. But oh, I don't know if it is for everybody. To me, that's what's at the heart of this step is just surrendering. Yeah, yeah, and and that's why when you surrender, you stop. You, know, you stop the addictive behavior. It's, and, and rather than arguing about, well, I sometimes maybe I'm not totally powerless or I can manage some things. You know, I have a job. I'm manager of my department, so I, I am managing. Rather than arguing all that, the sense of letting go that comes with surrender, the sense really... I actually said this to the students today, I think, or yesterday, um, that, oh, they were asking me about the word freedom because it shows up in a lot of Dharma texts, freedom. I said, well, 
when I got sober, right before I got sober, I thought, if I stop drinking and using, it's going to be this loss. And I don't know what I'm going to do. Life is going to be so boring. But I'm such a loser now that now I have to be like that. But that as soon as I stopped drinking and using, I felt this freedom. Like, what a relief. Something off my shoulders. I don't have to deal with this anymore. I don't have to count my drinks or figure out how, you know, what time I can roll a joint that is not, you know, I'm not starting too early in the day or, you know, I don't have to worry about, like, am I going to be able to drive home after the gig with one eye closed, you know, trying to see, okay, how many lines are there on the highway? Um, It was really freeing. And that that surrender, step one, is really a surrender that's a, a surrendering something that you don't want, you know, giving up the, the uh, burden that we're carrying. And it just uh, was such a relief to, to say, oh, uh, this doesn't work. You know, I've been, because I was trying to control it. I mean, I was, I don't know about you guys, but I was desperately trying to control and enjoy my drinking and using for a long time. And, and as I say, sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't, which means that I never was. That's my understanding. If it looked, if one day I controlled my drinking and the next day I didn't, then I don't believe I was actually controlling it on the day that I thought that I was controlling it. It's just that I didn't, the craving didn't take over. But, uh, but it's, it, you know, this is what, you know, for people who might be struggling, I don't know, there's maybe some newcomers here, struggling with this idea of like, oh God, I have to let go of this thing that I love. Like, I think you will find that there's tremendous freedom and joy in letting go. And when you look at the principles of Buddhism, core principle is that the cause of suffering is clinging and the way to freedom is letting go. And there it is in step one. There it is in our our recovery program that that letting go is the beginning and it's the the heart of of our recovery. And ultimately, that's what brings the steps and, and Buddhism together, is that core understanding of what causes suffering. You know, and the Buddha talks about this in somewhat, sometimes sort of abstract terms, um, in, in um, terms, and, and Buddhist teachers often talk about this in more vague terms, I would say. But this is one of the things that I think I find so precious about talking about Dharma in terms of recovery because it's very specific, it's very, it's very real, it's very real in our lives. It's not like, oh, I really need to let go of my attachment to spaghetti, you know, or whatever, <laughs> gluten. Or, sorry, somebody might be, really have a problem with that. But... <laughs> You know, there is a way in which it can kind of get precious around here. And uh, it ain't precious in an AA meeting or in a refuge recovery meeting or in an NA meeting or an OA meeting. It's not precious. You know, it's very real. It's very, uh, it's very much about life or death. So, so there you go. 
That wasn't bad. I'm going to give. Uh, it was a pretty good performance. Uh, let me say, put it. You know, all the you know all the station, all the channels are saying that I gave a great performance, and uh, you know, yes, I think she's going to say something. Okay, well, let me be a little bit more... I'll, I'll clarify that for you. Hang on. So, clinging is the cause of suffering. The second noble truth. So the Buddha says like that what really causes suffering is... And there, it's... All right. What it says in the sutta is that thirst... <laughs> that there are three kinds of thirst, the word tanha, that cause suffering. So we, we often, and I often do this, we blur together the desire or thirst and clinging because they are so... Because when there's desire, there's clinging with it. So the Buddha says that the desire for sensual pleasure, the desire for ego gratification, and the desire for ego annihilation, or like turning everything off, are the three forms of desire that cause suffering. Now, you can, but it's fair enough to say clinging causes suffering. It's pretty much the same thing. So the craving for alcohol or the clinging to alcohol, whether, you know, the addiction, can you separate the addiction from the desire for the substance? It's not really, it, it's a, what's that term? It's a, diff, a distinction without a difference or something like that. Um, and then, uh, so then letting go is the freedom, is, is the way to freedom, right? So that's the third noble truth. So the four noble truths are the, the first truth is that there is suffering and it, he, the Buddha talks about these different forms of suffering. And then the second noble truth is that that suffering, especially psychological suffering, is caused by these forms of craving and clinging. And then the third noble truth is when you stop craving, when you stop clinging, ah, there's a feeling of freedom. And the fourth noble truth is the path, the Eightfold Path, that trains you to really let, to, to let go. Yeah? What's the desire for ego annihilation? It's, <laughs> the desire, I'm, I'm using that as sort of shorthand, but, so, the, the way it's translated, it says there's the, the desire to be, and the desire to not be. So, the way, we understand that generally is just something like, I just want to go to sleep or I just want to get loaded, right? I want to turn off life. And whether it's literally going unconscious or whether it's shutting down. Yeah, so you said it, it, it's, you think it correlates more with, I'm asking, with addiction? Does that, does that correlate more with um, 
the addiction um, stuff than with Dharma. I, I haven't heard that mentioned in Dharma teachings. It's not often mentioned um, because it's kind of a subtle concept. Um, it's it's a kind of a subtle concept, but it's it is absolutely if you go if you look at the the suttas the, in the Pali Canon, which is the earliest Buddhist teachings, when the Buddha introduces the four noble truths and he and he says the the cause of suffering, those are the three things: sensual desire, and then the desire to be. Which and we have to kind of interpret these and the desire to not be. So the desire to be, when we kind of when I say we, I'm saying like Dharma teachers and Dharma practitioners. Like uh, the desire to be, I think of it as the ego, the desire to you know be somebody, right? You know, I'm Kevin Griffin. Do you know who I am? You know, I I did this, I did that, and uh, but it 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 doesn't even have to be that grandiose. You know, it can be very simple. It can be. I'm a dog owner, you know, I have a dog, you know, I'm walking the street, that's who I am right now, and there's not a big thing about it, but it's like, I'm very clear, like, that's who I am, I'm a dog owner, you know, so, but the desire to not be, what could it mean, right, because the Buddha doesn't explain it, so you have to think about, well, what's the opposite of that, well, you could say it's the desire to not be seen. You know, I don't want to be known. Could be, but it seems like it's more. It makes more sense that it's like I just don't want to be conscious. You know, don't know. Uh, it's something I, you know, I explore and I and I, I share my best understanding. But uh, as I say, I, I've. Never seen anything in the text where the Buddha explains that, and so mostly what I know is my own interpretation, and then listening to other teachers' interpretation, we kind of go, okay, that's our best guess. Because one of the things about the Dharma is that it's always about us, right? It's not that even even if I'm not understanding what the Buddha said, if I'm understanding something then it's of benefit, you know, right? Because it's like we have, to, we have to make it our own and kind of find our own meaning in it. And if it doesn't, if somebody says something like, oh, well, you know, the, you should understand the five uh, aggregates, like, you know, the aggregate of, of consciousness. It's like, and you're like, I don't really understand that. Like, who cares, right? Because there's enough dharma, <laughs> that you do understand and that works for you that that it's not necessary to if everything doesn't like resonate you just kind of go okay take what you need and leave the rest <laughs> don't know I have a song called don't know too I, I never I didn't put that on my album I don't know why <laughs> sorry that was a joke no you didn't get it okay well no, Think I was about just it. looking at the correlation of annihilation or um, as in the 12 steps where we isolate. Yeah, you know, right. It's just the, where we don't want to be seen. It's saying the same thing. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. I think that's, that's, a, that's a good, I think that's a good uh, thought, a good observation and um, something to consider. Um, I'm going to have to bring that into my 
by thinking about it. So, um, yeah, we're just about out of time. So, um, I will let you know, um, you know, if you want to sort of follow my doings, you can get on my mailing list. On my website is kevingriffin.net and I have a mailing list that's... Um, I have two... Like I have a subset of my mailing list which is just for people in the Bay Area uh, which if you're here tonight you should sign up for that. Um, or you can friend me on Facebook. Um, but... Uh, you know, it's nice to be able to communicate with people. Um, and particularly, you know, I, I do have this a new book. It's, I just got the last blurb last night. <laughs> and uh, the book designer said he was going to send me the finished book today, which means I'm going to upload it probably tomorrow. And I'm not sure how long Amazon will take to uh, process it, but it should be very shortly, and it's, uh, as some of you have heard me talk about, it. it's called Living Kindness, Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. And it's not a recovery book. I explicitly tried not to talk about recovery. There's one or two just casual mentions. But um, partly, partly because I wanted to reach the broader Buddhist audience. And one of the things I've discovered is that even though I think my teaching is relevant for the broader Buddhist audience. Um, oftentimes, they kind of feel like, oh, that's for those people. I'm not one of them, so I'm not going to look at that. So um, so this is a book is a reflection on what, it, what loving kindness means in terms of our lives and also in terms of how the Buddha specifically talked about it in some of the suttas. And uh, so it's it's a really it was a really enjoyable, uh, really 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 enjoyable book and in- intense rich book to write, and I've gotten tremendous support. Sharon Salzberg wrote a beautiful blurb, which I just put on Facebook last night just to tease people. And then if you know Gil Fronsdale, uh, he wrote a blurb, and he's one of the Spirit Rock teachers. And I, I only asked four people for blurbs and, and it was very specific the, the third one is Ajahn Pasano and for me getting a monk to write a blurb for my book was like oh I'm very so I feel very uh, confident that what I'm doing I, I, you know is is legitimate is um, is worthy and it's and it's a book that's meant to be not for a beginner beginner uh, although I'm sure a beginner could read it, but it's—I feel like it's a fairly sophisticated book because a lot of most Buddhist books, especially if they're commercial, which uh, this is not a, through a publisher. If they're commercial, the publishers want you to write for beginners because that's the biggest market. And uh, you know, I wanted to speak to people who who had some experience and some sophistication with the Dharma, and uh, and kind of take people a little deeper. I think, I hope, I'm taking people a little deeper. So, uh, the next time I'm here, I should have copies of it. I'm going to be heading off for a lot of traveling, but I'll be coming back. <laughs> you know, uh, I'll be here most most months. 
so, um, you know, I just wanted to share that because it's um, a pretty exciting time for me. And so let's just do, do a, a minute or two of metta together. And this this beautiful hall and this beautiful building and this beautiful land and this center are precious refuges for us in this time. We do indeed live in a difficult time when it's hard to keep the heart open to stay with love and forgiveness for all beings. But this is the challenge that the Buddha set forth for us. And so it is the one that we take on. Forgiving ourselves when we are not able to do so. But in that spirit, I'd really like to offer some love to our president. In all his suffering, all his dukkha. And may all beings be free from hatred and racism. Be free from anger and ill will, from greed, from delusion. May we all know the joy of letting go, the freedom of letting go. May we all care for each other in this difficult world and in the challenge of living and being a human. May all beings be free from suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.